It has already been an amazing honor to sing as we've done, to pray as we've done, to assemble as we have done, and yet we, of course, also still can look forward to the other attributes and the aspects of our worship. And for the next few moments, I want to talk to you using the Word of God to challenge each of us to ask, how well are you seeing? Vision problems is the title of the lesson today. In fact, as you'll notice in that text a moment ago read by Brother John, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 7, there was a great plea on the part of Paul that in fact their understanding would be heightened. And that of course has relationship ultimately to how well do you see. These introductory comments I hope will motivate us to give some thought to the direction the lesson's going to take. May I ask that we begin like this. Every one of us within the sound of my voice today appreciate what an amazing blessing your physical eyes are. The overwhelming majority of the information you take into your body comes by way of sight. We know there are five senses, but what we see is such an amazing blessing and attribute to our life. And yet God made our eyes. May I suggest to you that the physical characteristic of seeing is still one of the strongest evidences against any such thing as evolution. To think that the eye could have evolved is beyond comprehension. The intricacy of it, the amazing features whereby the light is focused at the right spot and the optic nerve carries that information to the brain, truly fascinating. But today we're not going to talk so much about our physical eyes, it's our spiritual ones. Vision problems. And so it is as you come to the bottom of that slide. You'll notice that from time to time we do visit the optometrist. Our daughter Deanna, of course, we go to see her regularly to have her eye checkups. What about spiritual eye checkups? Today we're going to look at five vision problems. We'll find they're all bad. They're just terrible spiritually. And yet, maybe you and I are inflicted with one or more of them. If so, we need to fix them. We need to let the great physician, Jesus the Master, fix those eye problems. And so let's begin our journey by, first of all, emphasizing this. The Bible makes an incredible encouragement to all of us that we might have the correct vision, that we might have properly directed vision. Would you look with me at some of these verses? As we begin at the top, isn't it true that there are several examples in the Bible of those who in fact set before us a great example of this? When Solomon became king, remember his dad had reigned for some 40 years, but David passed on, of course. And Solomon, his son, came to the throne. And the first thing that you and I have record of is this. God said, Solomon, ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon could have asked for long life, but he didn't. He could have asked for a great military victory, but he didn't. He could have asked for overwhelming, conquering nature to his enemies, but he didn't. Give thy servant an understanding heart, that I might discern thy people. Solomon wanted great spiritual vision. I want to be able to discern carefully and properly the matter of their life and lead them as they need to go. He wanted vision. Look at, look at this one with me. Isn't it true you and I as Christians are strongly encouraged to be people of proper vision? In Ephesians 1.18, in that great prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, he prayed that your eyes might have understanding. 
that they might be enlightened and that you might in fact perceive and appreciate the great character and movement of God among you. He wanted the church in Ephesus to have good vision. Why don't we add this to that? Colossians 1.19, Paul wanted the church in Colossae to also know and understand that too. One by one, as you consider those particulars and those examples, the word understanding is often what appears in the Bible, and that word carries with it a sense of correct discernment, correct vision. One last thing on that slide. Not only are, of course, all of God's people, we know that God has entrusted local congregations to the leadership of elders. And they, perhaps especially given those qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, must be men of tremendous spiritual vision to where they, of course, discern using the Word of God and implement those things in a correct way to move and motivate. As we think about all of that included, you'll notice this particular in Acts 20, verses 28 to 32, I suppose among all the passages you and I think of, perhaps none ascends higher than that one. Here were elders to whom Paul directed these comments. Elders of the church in Ephesus, in fact. And it was to them that he said, very specifically and carefully, you are those that will, of course, oversee the flock. But not only that, you are entrusted with the leadership and the movement to them. And of course, we are thankful for God's wisdom in His presentation of those directives. But certainly, elders must be men of tremendous vision. I suppose we've said enough to lead us to the bottom of that slide. Several times in the New Testament, Paul commented along this line to the Galatians. In Galatians 3.1, your eyes need to be open. And literally, that word in the Greek has to do with your spiritual capability of seeing. Not only that... In 1 Chronicles 12, 32, I found it exciting to think about this Old Testament example. The men of Issachar are described in such a complimentary way. And what was said about them? They were men who understood the times. They were able to appreciate the movement and culture didn't deter them, but they knew what things could happen by virtue of it. And in their knowledge of the times, they could lead themselves and those whom they could influence in the way that was right. It is with all that in mind, why don't we each then give ourselves a spiritual checkup this morning, vision-wise. Five vision problems. Let's turn our attention to the first one. Nearsightedness. Now maybe you are afflicted with nearsightedness. Literally, if you go to an optometrist, maybe that person will say, you're, you're, you're nearsighted. Well, you and I know what that means. It means I can see objects that they're close, but they're very far away, they're blurry, they're perhaps well unresolved. I just can't see them very well. Did you realize there's a spiritual affliction like that too? Spiritual nearsightedness. Why don't we develop it like this? That person who is spiritually nearsighted, again, capable of appreciating what is so close at hand, but they don't make any plans for the future or they make insufficient consideration for what may well be the distant consequences. They only deal with the here and now. A problem arises or a circumstance is there and maybe they react to it, but there's little planning for the appreciation of how to ensure that in future times, perhaps even distant times, 
that, that could be avoided, that could be removed, it could be set aside. And proper, of course, preparation has been made. Spiritual nearsightedness. You'll notice on that slide, I've borrowed or at least asked you to think about the phrase, maybe you've heard it before. Those who fail to plan, plan to fail. It's important in our families to have planning. It's important, of course, in our church to have planning. Look at some of these examples at the bottom. Instances in the Word of God in which this particular was said to be a bad thing. Ancient Israel. Moses was a great leader without a doubt. He had led those people through those years of difficult wilderness wandering. He had so often faced the complaining and characteristics of them. But all the while, God knew Moses was going to pass on at some point. But God groomed for years his successor, a man named Joshua. When Moses passed on, the leadership didn't skip a beat. Passed right to Joshua, and he, of course, led them into the land of Canaan, and they conquered it. But isn't it true that in those verses, like Exodus 17, 9, 33, 11, and others, we have the references made. God made direction for the selection and the encouragement of a man named Joshua. You'll notice God didn't want any spiritual nearsightedness in Moses or in the children of Israel. Why don't we add another example to that? Don't you just love Nehemiah in this regard? Nehemiah, in fact, was dwelling in a rather comfortable place. He was in the king's house. Remember, he was cupbearer to the king in Nehemiah chapter 1. But yet he received word that things were not good in Jerusalem. He heard the wall was broken down. The people were living there without the protection that a wall offers. And Nehemiah's countenance fell. Now again, here was a man who was living in a very comfortable, convenient place, and yet he was willing to forego that to make plans to build the wall in Jerusalem. And so he got the tools together. He got the word from the king right. He got permission in all the respected authorities. He made plans. It would take a long time to perceive the fulfillment of those plans, but Nehemiah was a man of planning. Maybe one final observation. Spiritual nearsightedness is tragic. You and I know what it can mean to our physical eyesight to be nearsighted, but think about what it means to ourselves spiritually and to the church without the vision for long-term success, long-term propriety, long-term involvement in those things required. It's not going to turn out good. No wonder we need then to appreciate God encourages us not to be spiritually nearsighted. What's another spiritual eye problem? Not only nearsightedness, what about farsightedness? Now you might wonder, how could this be a problem? You and I know, at least from our physical vision, if one's farsighted, you can see things at a distance rather well, but you can't see close. Objects that are close are, of course, very unresolved, very blurry in general. Well, consider this spiritual development. A person who is spiritually farsighted is always planning for the distance, but they miss the opportunities staring them in the face. They miss what is in the here and now. They miss what is directly in front of them. They're always planning for what's in the far distance. I believe we can each envision that that isn't good either. 
when God opens those doors, they might well be close at hand. And they might be immediately there for our appreciation and for the blessing of His kingdom. Why don't you and I think about this spiritual farsightedness in ways like this, about the middle of that slide. There may well be such an emphasis on planning, such an emphasis on intent, that actions do not come as needed. There's always a lot of planning, but the involvement in terms of the actual action is lacking. We all know God doesn't look so well on intent. Action has to follow. Things that it must, must come to pass in light of bring to fruition that which in fact the Scriptures endorse. I think we all can see this farsightedness is again a dangerous thing. Maybe at the workplace you can at least appreciate the principle. Have you ever been around a place? Maybe there's a manager, a leader. They're always planning for a year or two years from now, but the opportunities of tomorrow are completely missed. That's tragic. It's rather sad. Might you and I be cautious and careful as we look at some of these examples? Can you think of instances in the Word of God where God challenged those of His day not to be farsighted? What about the Corinthian church? As you and I turn to the books of First and Second Corinthians in the New Testament, you might well remember that especially in their regard, the following discussion took place. Paul was making a collection for poor saints at Jerusalem. It's a bit interesting. We just discussed this this past Wednesday evening, didn't we? But as he was making that contribution, the church in Corinth had made intent to contribute. They just hadn't followed through with it. They had made plans for it, but they hadn't ever done it. You see, they were spiritually farsighted when it came to that. They, in fact, had jumped on to the consideration of it. They had good plans to do it, but they had never brought it to fruition. And because of that, Paul censured them rather strongly. You a year ago made intent for this. Now follow through with it. The verses of the opening part of 2 Corinthians 9 detail Paul's insistence and what a great blessing it would be not only for themselves, but certainly for those saints in Jerusalem. Could you and I ask this? Spiritual farsightedness then does remind us that God has blessed us to the point we live in the here and now. It is important to be those who plan, those who make preparation, those who have spiritual insight. One of the best definitions for wisdom, it seems to me, that I've ever heard is this. Wisdom is that capability in which a person knows how something's going to turn out. From your own experience, from the teaching of the Word of God, you know this is not going to turn out good. Well, that's wisdom. And as parents, we of course develop some of that through the years, but when it comes to the Bible, there's no better source for wisdom than this. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. James chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7. And so it is. May we not be nearsighted spiritually, but we also need not be farsighted either. What's the third vision problem? Astigmatism. Maybe you've been to the optometrist and you've been diagnosed with astigmatism you well know that that means your eyeball is misshaped. It, it's not nicely spherical in sense, and so the, the image that's formed is not clear. It, it's just blurry. Well, why don't we discuss that? 
the distortion of that vision. Spiritually, what would that mean? Seems to me this is a good example. If a person has spiritual astigmatism, you don't evaluate circumstances properly. You're blurred in terms of your understanding of what to do and how to do it. Maybe you make poor judgments in that regard. You'll notice again about the middle of the slide, this kind of person, again, maybe even just doesn't make decisions at all. I don't want to deal with this. Well, maybe that's closely akin to spiritual astigmatism. It generally is true, isn't it? A problem won't go away if you just choose not to deal with it. It'll fester. It'll continue. In fact, it may even lead to more problems. Isn't that what happened in the church at Corinth? A little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump he taught. 1 Corinthians 5. Well, surely in that regard, astigmatism is not good spiritually either. We need crystal clear vision when it comes to matters spiritual. Why don't you look at these examples? You remember a few of them in the Word of God. Let's start with one in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 18, there was a development and how interesting it has proven to be so many times as you and I have reflected upon it. The people of Israel at that time had been so strongly motivated by Jezebel and Ahab that they had become strongly idolatrous. Oh, they had some degree of appreciation for God, but they much more felt it comfortable to worship Baal. What was that famous question that Elijah asked them? How long halt you between two opinions? They weren't making any decision. They were trying to serve God. They were trying to serve Baal. Elijah said, How long do you stand? How long do you continue halting between two opinions? If Baal is God, then serve Him. But if it's Jehovah God, then serve Him. God doesn't want us to have blurry vision spiritually. He, want, uh, he wants us to appreciate by the presentation of His Word what is the course of action and to appreciate the demand of that Word of God relative to it. Now that example of the Old Testament maybe leads us again to that famous passage in the opening sta statements of the book of James. Remember that in that case there were Christians suffering mightily. So much so that that persecution that they were facing was very severe. James wrote, Don't you realize? Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Verse 2 of James 1. And then he went on to say, Let that wisdom dwell in you in such a way that the engrafted word will save your soul. James 1.18 let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Amazing, isn't it, then, to reflect that if we just allow things to pass and not do anything, that isn't in keeping with the Word of God. If we evaluate it in a misjudged way, that isn't right either. This third spiritual vision problem is a serious one. How's your checkup going so far? Do you and I have spiritual nearsightedness, spiritual farsightedness? Are we afflicted with spiritual astigmatism? Of course, before we're done, we're going to let the optometrist tell us what's going on. Let's look at a fourth problem first. What else might we consider to be a serious issue? Tunnel vision. Now, this one, your optometrist likely is not going to say much about this. 
this is an attitude issue, isn't it? It's one in which I see my way and my preference and no other suggestions are even to be worthy of consideration. It's my way or no way. Well, obviously, you and I understand that kind of tunnel vision can be described like this. That circumstance in which an individual, even when given perhaps additional approaches that are superior, is unwilling to accept them, unwilling to even hear them seriously. This person can only see what their past has been, what their circumstances are, the, th the things that they prefer. I'm sure all of us have been rather afflicted in various cases with those who have tunnel vision. Maybe you've attended a meeting at work and there's someone there who has just heard a fantastic idea but they are unwilling to even hear it because that's not the way we've always done it. It's not the way others before us did it. And so why even consider it? Despite the fact it's a fantastic suggestion. Tunnel vision. It can really be hurtful, can't it? You'll notice about the middle of that slide, individuals afflicted with tunnel vision simply do not hear or are unwilling to see any additional options or considerations rooted in the past, wedded solely and only to things which perhaps aren't bound by the Word of God, just a tradition. Maybe in light of that, we can ask about an example. Can you think about instances in the Word of God in which individuals were afflicted with what you and I would call tunnel vision? Well, it seems to me that one of the strongest Evidences against it comes in the life of a man named Paul. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul himself was describing and thinking about the nature of not only the church in Corinth, but his labors in the gospel. And you remember that he said it in words like this, "...to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those under the law I became as under the law that I might win them that are under the law." To those without law, I became as without law that I might win them without law. I've become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Paul didn't have tunnel vision. If he was laboring in an area that was Gentile, he would behave in such a way, not unscripturally of course, but in such a way that he might gain their appreciation that they might be more receptive to the gospel. Despite the fact he had been reared a Jew... To those that were Jewish, he labored among them in ways that they would appreciate to be wholesome and proper, that he might, of course, have an influence among them. You and I mustn't have tunnel vision. It's the Word of God that's important, not my opinion, not yours. But what saith the Scripture, Romans 4 verse 3? Isn't it a fascinating thing then to reflect on tunnel vision's difficulties in the light of what's new Aren't you excited about the newness of the gospel? For 1,500 years, the law of Moses had held sway. It had been the supreme matter, and Israelites, Hebrews, if you please, had been expected to obey it. But then, there was something new. They couldn't grasp on and hold on to the old. That old was nailed to the cross, and they had to grasp on to what was new. God had told them that, that it would be that way in Jeremiah 31. And that's quoted virtually verbatim in Hebrews chapter 8. You and I serve beneath this new covenant, the new gospel. And in so doing, it shall of course ever remain new basically until the end of time. 
this new era beneath which you and I now live. Isn't it wonderful? That newness means, of course, we must appreciate that God is the one giving us those directions. That tunnel vision then that can be so hampering, that can be so inhibitive, that can be so removal of what good approaches there might be, may you and I never be afflicted with it. Isn't it true as we consider ourselves, our leaders, these four problems we've discussed so far must be set aside and we'll allow the great physician to help us in just a moment. Problem number five is this one. Not only are these four worthy of our consideration, but of course... There's a very sad physical condition one might have, actual blindness. You and I realize that blindness is that instance when a person cannot see. Though the person has eyes, they don't function correctly for one reason or another. In fact, not only not correctly, but they actually cannot see at all. The Bible talks about spiritual blindness on several occasions and it sets before all of us strong warnings about the reality of this possibility. Spiritual blindness is that condition when a person chooses not to follow the Lord. Now let's hear that again. This person chooses not to follow the leading directive of God. Now, as you think about those places of the Bible where it occurs, in Jeremiah 5, 21, in the days of the Old Testament, Israelites, of course, were blessed with two physical eyes, but God said, you're blind because I, through the prophets, have given you the law and you won't follow it. Spiritual blindness. To the days of Jeremiah in Ezekiel 12, verse 2, here was a people in captivity. They had already appreciated the sad dividends of their choices they had been rebellious to God. They had ignored His will. Now they were in Babylon. God said, you know why you're here? You're blind. When you had the opportunity to hear the prophets and the message of truth, you willfully disobeyed it. Spiritual blindness. Why don't we add John 12 verse 40 in the words of Jesus as He addressed those of His day. Here were people. They hear my word, but they won't follow me. They believe blind leaders of the blind. We all remember that. Blind leading the blind. Isn't it true that in spiritual blindness is that situation when the Word of God and all of its majestic wonder is there, the powerful leadership that it offers and the course through life that it sets before us, and yet a person chooses to neglect it, to ignore it, to prefer something else. That's spiritual blindness. One last verse from Romans eleven eight, As Paul addressed the church in Rome, here was a congregation reminded about the seriousness of spiritual blindness. Isn't it true that one by one as we've looked at these five problems, isn't there a very clear truth that not only has something to say about this one, but it has something to say about all five of them. In Jeremiah 10, verse 23, that noble prophet of the days of old, God through him declared, It's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. How sorely we need the direction of God, His leadership, and to humbly submit to it. To simply do what He tells us, the way He tells us, for the reason He tells us. Amazing, isn't it, then, that these spiritual vision problems can be so very serious. On that slide... 
one last thing, of course, and it seems that it's worthy to note on that slide. Physical blindness may well not at all be curable. A person who, in fact, is such that their vision will not work at all, the eye is so complicated, you may never be able to fix that problem. But may I ask you to note, spiritual blindness is curable. All we have to do is open this book, study it, and apply it. We can cure spiritual blindness. Didn't the Lord encourage those of His day to do it? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, verses 28 and following. The critical, the amazing feature, I suppose, of these vision problems is, of course, something that leads us to a conclusion. And we'll develop a bit on this slide. It may be a bit longer conclusion than what we're accustomed to. But you'll notice it begins by noting this. Our quality of vision greatly affects the quality of our life, doesn't it? If you can't see well, perhaps you can't drive, you can't work around your place. But by the same token, may I suggest, spiritual vision problems are even more serious. They impact our relationship to God. They impact our involvement in the church. They impact the characteristic features of how we shall or shall not be a servant of the God of heaven. And of course, on the day of judgment, we shall give an accounting for our spiritual vision. If we had farsightedness, nearsightedness, astigmatism, tunnel vision, or blindness, we're going to have to give account for that. Every deed done in the body, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 and Revelation 22 12, will be that for which you and I shall give an accounting. No wonder in light of those things. We then will close our lesson with these encouragements and these challenges. There is a spiritual eye doctor. He's called the great physician. He is Jesus the Christ, and He has the finest document ever written that can not only address these vision problems, but can offer an immediate solution. It's not a speculation. It's an absolute remedy. The matter is left to you and me. If there's anyone in this audience and you have spiritual nearsightedness, you live only for the moment, haven't made plans for what's going to be for the remainder of your life here and surely what's going to be hereafter. Don't you want to make some changes today? Don't you want to bring yourself to the point where you can see clearly the things that this world really is and oh, how clearly the things after death. But if you have farsightedness, maybe you're always just making plans for the distant and you're missing opportunities that are surrounding you left and right. That isn't good either. Jesus and those apostles, weren't they just wonderful at recognizing those open doors, Revelation 3.8, as well as, of course, the text of 1 Corinthians 16.9. But maybe you have astigmatism. Maybe you haven't involved yourself in the book enough. And issues that really are crystal clear, they're fuzzy to you. You don't know what to do or how to do it. Be a person of the book as you study, apply it, and let it be the directing guide. Put into action those things that you read therein. Maybe you have tunnel vision. Maybe you're wedded to this particular thing, this idea, this opinion about how something has been. And maybe there's others that have 
better ideas or perhaps more efficient ideas, realize that tradition can really be a hampering thing. Finally, spiritual blindness. You've heard what the Word of God has to say, but you've just ignored it. Maybe to this point you have had an attitude whereby I think I'll be all right. You know you won't be. Listen with me to these words. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. And he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. God assures you it's not going to turn out good if you're spiritually blind. It isn't. Oh, you may make it through this life, but you'll have nothing hereafter in any way of a reward. Why not come to Jesus today? The great physician is wanting to see you. Appointments are available. We're about to stand and sing a hymn of encouragement. If you have any of these vision problems, and we here at the congregation can be of help by praying on your behalf, we'd be happy to do it. If you have begun to live a Christian life and you've been faithful, continue that faithfulness. Your vision is keen right now. Make sure it always stays that way. Make your calling and election sure in the words of 2 Peter 1 verse 10. Today, if we could be of assistance to anyone in this audience, as perhaps assisting you to become a Christian or to rededicate your life to the fold of Christianity, we'd be happy to assist you. We'd encourage you to come and do it now while together we stand and while we sing.